Hey, everybody. Welcome to Animates. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And we are so sorry for the delay. This time of year is uh, a little crazy, but we're back now. We are back to talk about season three of Korra, book three, Change. And I should say that it's all my fault that we've been <laughs> gone, like 90%. Because I've been on the job market and I've had to travel and keep up with regular classes. And it's just been a whirlwind of stuff. So, Well, yeah, let's just say 80-20, 80-20. (laughs) (laughs) But I will, things are slowing down a little bit, at least. So I will not be the main obstacle. There we go. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, book three of Korra is called Change. And it picks up just like... It's like six weeks after the events of season two. So, and I would say that um, just to sort of set it up a little bit, it starts kind of slow. I would say the first like four or five, even six episodes of the season are mostly kind of like dealing with the fallout of season two um, before we really get moving with the what's going to be the big plot of the season. Um, so we we open up and we're in Republic City for a while and it's dealing with suddenly there are people appearing who can airbend. There's spirit vines all over the city. Spirits are inhabiting Republic City now and um, Cora's trying to deal with that. And uh, then later in the season, we move on. We go traveling outside of Republic City and we meet a lot of um, new characters. So, Chris, if it's all right with you, I feel like actually it might be good to talk a little bit about the first half of the season and then introduce those new characters because that just feels like a natural division to me. Yeah, sure, sure. We get uh, quite a few in there because of... um some travel that Team Avatar ends up doing. But uh, I like to... The book is called Change, by the way. So we're we're off of the typical element name, so now we're on to it's Change. (laughs) Uh, um, Well, and and because, like Paige said, a big theme is dealing with the changes that have been made after Harmonic Convergence and Korra opened the portals... For the most part, people are angry at her. <laughs> yeah, they're not happy. <laughs> we we actually get out of Republic City. This this season takes place almost entirely outside of Republic City. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like part of the reason that she ends up leaving Republic City is for the first time the Avatar has to deal with the press and with elected officials who uh, the press are hostile to her because she is a world leader and um, elected officials can be hostile to her as well because uh, people are mad at her and they want to be seen as in opposition to the things that people are mad about so that they can get, you know, reelected. I I do want to say already. Okay. So I love this because it sets up. um, There's like this classic conflict that I see between People who occupy, like, the category, and and I'm not talking about, like, I'm going to talk about Nietzsche, not the Nazis. He's not a Nazi. Um, But the concept of the ubermensch versus, like, the everyday people. 
It's like the mm-hmm. super person who can go and do things under their own power um, versus like being constrained by all of these social and political systems. So, and, and Cora's just like, okay, peace out. <laughs> she just Well, goes, she essentially gets like fucking banished. She like the, the president banishes her from Republic City. Yeah. And I think another thing is that individual people are easier to scapegoat. So she, she sort of becomes, I mean, to be fair, she did open the portals without asking anybody first, but I I guess it sort of depends on like, if you're a collectivist, you might say that that was, she shouldn't have done that. Uh, Whereas like an individualist would be like, well, it was her choice to make. She's the avatar and she has that right. Yeah. I don't and I think it's something that she comes up against that they I don't think they fully grapple with. Um, but basically, so far in in both Avatar series, when humans and spirits come into conflict um, in in in, you know, the the place in the timeline that we're in. Right. It's mostly because humans are like disrespecting nature, encroach, encroaching into an area where the spirits make their home, like, you know, um, being generally aggressive and colonialist, essentially. But then she runs into a situation where now there are these huge spirit vines, like in apartments where people used to live, and she's trying to get them to go away. And, you know, this little like hedgehog spirits, like, you know, well, vines are spirits and spirits are vines. And this is where we live now. And it's like, well, other people used to live there. <laughs> like, What about all of the humans that lived in these apartment buildings before? They still need somewhere to live. Yeah. And that's why that's why I think that it's a little bit easier to sort of uh, put the onus on Cora for why didn't you ask anybody about this first? I mean, to be fair. Cor- the spirit vines were specifically caused by Vatu. That's true. They were. So, so like, it's it's sort of the leg. It's it's not really her fault. Harmonic convergence probably wouldn't have produced vines growing all over Republic City if Vatu hadn't come and tried to destroy the place. That's true. That's so it's true. really his legacy. But nobody seems to think about it that way. Everybody <laughs> seems to think that Cora directly caused these vines to grow here. And her failure to get rid of them is also entirely her fault. Yeah. But then there's like the other like, I think, more plot relevant to the whole season thing that happens, which is like suddenly people are gaining the ability to airbend, um, not the least of which is Boomy, uh, Tenzin's older brother and Aang's oldest child suddenly becomes an airbender. Suggesting that harmonic convergence has the ability to affect balance amongst a variety of things. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's, it's affecting sort of like bending ratios. I think it's like it's just awakening latent abilities. I don't think it's creating new ones. Okay. Yeah, they don't really dive into like the lore of how it happened. They're just all kind of like, must have been harmonic convergence. <laughs> and then they move on. Yeah, and and I I think for somebody like me who's like, ooh, I want to know how this universe works. I I think it's probably just they 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 all descended from the Air Nomad tribe long ago, and sure. um, you know, some of those Air monks are going into some like Earth Kingdom villages and having a sugar daddy or a sugar mama. Yeah, yeah, they're getting it on with some like 
cute little mama from the Fire Nation. So yeah, it's totally it's totally plausible. <laughs> they're nomads, you know. They roll into town, they roll on out. <laughs> yeah, they're called nomads because they walk into somebody's home and they're like, "Want to have sex?" Nomad, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> Nomad. <laughs> um, so a big the the plot impetus is that Cora's getting pushed out of her public study because she's tried, and she's gonna help Tenzin rebuild the Air Nation by going around and collecting these um, nascent Airbenders. That's the big. That's sort of like the big. Okay, we're leaving Republic City now. Well, and which yeah. makes sense. We've been there for two whole seasons. Yeah, and we get to get on an airship and fly around, and that's pretty fun. It's a very airship-heavy season. They begin to travel, and um, I'm not going to sort of summarize what happens along their trip, but they do find airbenders, and of course they run into trouble doing that, too. Yeah, it's like a big disappointment for Tenzin because he's like, He's like really, really excited for there to be other airbenders. And but like people are like, sorry, man, like, yeah, I gained the ability to airbend. But like I was raised in the Earth Kingdom and have like a family and a, and a job. And I don't want to just like completely switch cultures and like leave my entire life behind just because I gained the ability to airbend. So please leave. <laughs> Yeah, Tenzin sort of in his very typical Tenzin way thinks everything is going to go his the way he sees it. And people don't just want to pack up their lives and go live as an air nomad. And Tenzin sells it terribly. He's like, you're going to shave your head and you're going to eat a vegetarian diet. And just like all of these things that go against a person's cultural heritage or upbringing, he comes in and he thinks he's going to change them. Um, though what fucking kills me is the first new airbender that they get is in Republic City and his name's fucking Otaku. Yes, it's so it's it's hilarious because he's a nerdy like he knows everything. Um, he's like a 20 something guy who lives in his mom's basement and like doesn't like anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's and pretty... his mom's like this super sweet, like suburban housewife. That like it's very becomes apparent very rapidly. She wants this kid the fuck out of her house. That interaction is really good. It's it's fantastic. It's very funny. The sort of the the big conflict. So setting it just setting up the major set piece conflicts here. Um, we find out that there are three criminal wait four criminals four. who are locked up in these crazy prisons that. Um, Tried to kidnap Korra when she was a baby. And one of them named Zaheer gains airbending ability and he breaks out. And he rounds the gang back up. And they're all incredibly powerful benders. And they yeah, they're go, all in these like dope prisons that are specific to their ability. That it takes all kinds of crazy Ocean's Eleven-esque heists to break them out of. And they, they get out, and they, they're going to go after Korra again. They also say they're going to kill all the leaders of the world, which is, like, they don't explain yet what their philosophy is, but it becomes... The world leader killing, I feel like that comes up a little bit later, right? No, they kind of talk about that concurrently, too, getting Korra. Yeah. 
Yeah, at first it's very unclear why any of this. <laughs> we're going to go kill Korra or get Korra. Or get her. Yeah. I'm not sure what we're going to... It's unclear at first. You're like, what are you going to do with her? Why are you doing any of this? And and, and we'll get to that. But I think, um, I think Z- it's worth like introducing them really quickly. Um, so there's four of them. Uh, there is Ming-Hua, voiced by Grey Delisle, who she does everything. Um, and she has, like, no arms, but she's a waterbender, so she creates crazy tentacle water arms. It's it's very cool. Um, there's a Sparky Boom Boom Man, but it's a woman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not, how do you pronounce her name? Pili? Pili? Pili. Pili? Yeah, it's Pili. And um, she makes, like, explosions with her mind. Uh, and then there's a cool lava bender named Gazan. And then there's the leader, the airbender, the philosophy dork um, named Zahir. And he's voiced by Henry fucking Rawlings. <laughs> Rawlings, which is just so perfect. Like, given everything about, like, Zahir and his ideology and everything about it, it just could not be more perfect that Henry Rollins voices him. We, so they each have some special, like some special thing, whether it's, combu- Wait, go ahead. I, I just wanted to check, you know who Henry Rollins is, right? No, tell me who he is. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Rollins is the singer of Black Flag, the famous anarchist punk band. Oh no, I didn't know that. Yeah. I wonder how he feels about how they ended up. Yeah, I wonder about that too. That's definitely, yeah, something that we're gonna that we're gonna get to. Anyway, so they go after they start going after Cora um, on their travels. Um, we get introduced to a variety of new Airbenders, which will lead us into some more characters. The first one is a is a street a street punk urchin thief kid named Kai. Which and is, he's all, just you know, makes me think handsome of, in a 12-year-old way. And <laughs> right, charming. he's like a rap scallion. Yes, he is a rap scallion. That's the perfect word. And, well, Janora is about the same age. And, yeah, well. you know, Janora really likes Kai and Tenzin does not care for Kai. <laughs> Whenever I hear the name Kai, all I think of is Kai Rizdal from Marketplace on NPR. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> The actual, um, the relationship between, like, Bolin and Mako and Kai is really funny because Bolin immediately tries to be like, you're my little bro and, like, I want to take care of you and we're going to bring you into a new life and you're not going to be a street kid anymore. And Mako's all like, listen, kid, I know what you're about because I've been there, you know, and don't think I can, like, that I trust you farther than I can throw you. (laughs) So, um, Kai's their first new airbender. Because he's about to be taken away by Earth Earth Kingdom soldiers. For so stealing just lots of gold. So basically they ta- they give him sanctuary and he's like, You're gonna join our nunnery. You you're you're in trouble with the law and you're gonna join our nunnery. <laughs> sanctuary Held fire. Sorry, I got quasi <laughs> like the fucking Hunchback of Notre Dame is stuck in my head now. Dude, it's the best song in any Disney movie. Uh, it's so sexy. <laughs> well, it's literally about sex. Yeah, it's, yeah. God, 
I was talking about that at work the other day. I was like, Hunchback of Notre Dame. They're like, what even are the songs from that? I'm like, uh, Hellfire, the song where the priest is horny for Esmeralda and he like <laughs> sings about it, about how he's like going to go to hell, but he blames her that, for the fact that he's horny. And everyone was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you just explained hundreds of years of female persecution. You make me horny, so you must be in trouble. You're, I feel You're horny. a witch. Witch. <laughs> You're bewitching my penis. <laughs> my penis has never moved before. <laughs> That's <laughs> oh, life is terrible. Anyway, that's off topic. So they they begin traveling around and they find another airbender named Opal, who is the niece of drumroll Lynn Bayfong. She has a whole ass family somewhere else, a whole ass family, and she hates them. And a major part, so a major part of the first part is Beifong's family issues with uh, Suyin, her sister, and her family. And Lin is like being the unreasonable one at first, it seems. She's like angry she doesn't want to see them she doesn't even tell them she's coming there's like some major family uh, uh issues here yeah um, and she seems like she's being unreasonable because like her family like su yin and her family and the whole community she's created are objectively like super cool and nice like they're all they're, they're the metal clan they're all metal benders they have like this whole beautiful futuristic city made out of metal bed metal and they make art and and technology and all kinds of stuff through through metal bending and um you know they're like wealthy but but generous and kind and everyone's like lynn calm the fuck down your sister seems like a really nice person what's your problem so through the magical power of acupuncture, um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that? What do you think about the fact? So Lynn is under stress, and so Suyin suggests an acupuncturist, and she goes, and it basically brings up all of these uh, memories about the childhood, and we learn why Lynn isn't so unjustified in her anger of Suyin, but. All of this shit gets brought up by acupuncture and eventually acupuncture appears to make her feel really good and de-stressed. And it just seems like the salve for, for her issues. What do you like think about that? I mean, while I've never done acupuncture, I know like a lot of people who like I respect and who like know things about science who are like really pro acupuncture. And I think it's one of those like things that we in the West, like all Eastern medicine, we think is kind of, you know, woo and not real. But my understanding is that there's like more and more evidence to suggest that it has real benefits. I don't know if it can make you have like flashbacks or whatever. Um, but like, I've like, I've heard that it can like help with tension and, and stress. Okay. I, well, and I wasn't sort of talking about its veracity more than like this Western cartoon is sort of like say, saying it has like these very powerful mystic, like it's like a, it's like, we're going to do this and you'll be fine sort of thing. Like, is it appropriate of it all? Or do you think well, it fits well? I feel like if we're like, if we're going to draw the line at the acupuncture with the avatar series, like we should have drawn the line somewhere else. 
you know? Fair. Well, I, I don't I, I don't have a problem with that. I was just probing. No, I think that's fair. That's definitely fair. Like to for me, like if we're going to talk about like appropriativeness with Avatar, I think generally all of the sort of East Asian and and South Asian inspirations that they draw draw from the show, from my like limited perspective as a white person, it seems that they do it in a really like respectful way. Um if I'm going to like give them a hard time over anything, it's the fact that all of the whole show is like very clearly Asian inspired and all of the carrier characters are like decidedly not white looking, but they're almost all voiced by white people. That would be where I would give like if I were going to give them a hard time, that's where I would do it. OK, um, so we we find out that Su Yin was a bit of a, a bit of a fuck girl. <laughs> she's a wild child she i mean she she legitimately did bad things and like lynn lynn got to see like her sister basically committed a crime and toff their mom covered it up and lynn got to watch the effect that the guilt had on their mom because lynn stayed in republic city whereas su yen was basically said go travel the world and figure shit out and Lynn has still not let it go. And, and she still thinks like, essentially what her deal is, is like Sue Yin got off scot-free and she has this wonderful life. Like, where's the justice in that? Yeah. Of. And it, well, part of what it's like, part of what keeps me on the side of Lynn is being unreasonable, even after you see like the legitimately bad things that Sue Yin did is that like, Sue's like, mom and I worked this all out years ago. Like, mom and I have already talked about this. We've made our peace. You're literally the only one who's still mad about it. Yeah, so Lynn Lynn had all that balled up stuff. I mean, eventually Mm -hmm. they work through it and they end up being, have these great, like, sister, sisters in arms moments with, like, fighting, which are are really fun. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, Su Yin and her family turn out to be a major part of the last two books. Yeah, which I love. They're super cool. <laughs> Other than that, the airbenders, the real first conflict in the season comes to a head when the Earth Queen is hiding airbenders and is conscripting them into her army. And Kor's like, what? No, what the fuck? Um, again, it's the fucking Dai Li. It's some real, there is no war in bossing say shit again. And long story short, they rescue them and all of the air nomad or airbenders who were captured agree to join the air nation. So they do manage to get like a good sized group of people. The big, this, this early conflict sets up like the earth queen is like definitely a tyrant and is taxing people unfairly, does not really care about her subjects it really sets up a she's not a good ruler. No, she's an asshole. Like, she's super petty and demanding, and, and she's the worst. This is, like, why some people might be tempted to later agree with Zaheer. Because, like, oh, she's a bad ruler, and she's a relic, and blah, 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 blah. Um, mm-hmm. It is also why, like... Kids are watching this, and so they're watching, like, this powerful vigilante in the Avatar, like, do what is the right thing, but is definitely sort of, like, anti-follow-the-government. 
So it's we it's weird to me because it's like setting up it's setting up the idea that like wow the government is oppressive, which is fine with me. I'm totally cool with that. Um, yeah, basically her interactions with like President Raiko and the Earth Queen set up the idea that leaders don't always necessarily have the interests of the people at heart. They often have their own interests at heart and can be like really oppressive and bad because of that. Which for kids to watch on Nickelodeon is kind of like, oh, we're it's pretty radical. It's pretty. Yes, yeah, pretty radical. Yeah. Which may be one of the reasons that. <laughs> yes. They ended up, uh, OK, so they, they start the Air Nation. And then after that is really when the Zaheer stuff picks up. Um, yes. Where they really go into full gear trying to capture Korra. Um, they fight and a lot. And there's a lot of like running back and forth across the desert and being in airships and airships crashing and getting captured and escaping. There's all kinds of that back and forth for a number of episodes. Yeah, and and so I'm not going to like synopsize much more. The only thing I will say is that the battle comes to a head. Uh, eventually, Korra is poisoned and traumatized, but uh, manages to, with the help of the new airbenders she saved, defeat Zaheer, and she saves the day. But she's crippled yes. in the process. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so, but there are some plot points that I think are like super important and that need to be teased out. So one is when we find out what Zaheer's philosophy is. Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to finish the beginning to end synopsis so we could do sure, this. Sure, sure. We could like, yeah, okay, in. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Zaheer's philosophy, I'll let you do that. So he and Cora end up having a face-to-face -face meeting in the spirit world. And Zaheer essentially tells her, I'm part of like a secret organization called the Red Lotus. We all used to be part of the White Lotus, but we felt that after the, um, I think they literally call it the Hundred Years' War, you know, when, when the White Lotus came out of the shadows, that they became, you know, too involved in, in world government and too involved in doing the Avatar's bidding. And so we split away. And basically what we think is that there should be no, uh, no world leaders and no borders, you know, no countries, you know, no masters, no borders, right? And you're like, okay, cool like this is like a real philosophy that real people in the real world have and you can agree or disagree with it but like it's real it's called anarchism it's a left philosophy but then and also there have been anarchists historically most modern anarchists don't agree with this methodology but historically in the late 19th century assassination was a major way that anarchists saw um, you know, as a method to bring, you know, the contradictions to a head, right? Um, but then he starts to go on about how chaos is the natural order of things. And we see at one point he's able to make a speech to the people of Ba Sing Se, and he essentially encourages them to, like, go and create chaos, to, like, loot and pillage and burn and, and fight and things like that. And it starts to seem like, well, that's not 
anarchism. That is something else. That's very much a, you know, uh, Heath Ledger Joker, some people, some men just want to watch the world burn kind of thing. So, and it's difficult for me to determine whether... Because it seems like, you, you know, the writers have set up a situation where at first you are like, oh, yeah, Zaheer has a point because he points out to Korra, you've had a lot of trouble with world leaders. And it's the show has shown world leaders being very capricious. And so I don't know whether the writers have a clear understanding of what anarchism is and just think it's bad. And so they decided to like lampoon it or if they like don't actually have a clear understanding of what anarchism is and in order to make Zaheer like more villainous they fall back on sort of this false popular conception of what anarchy as a philosophy is right yeah or if it's just that they it's neither of those things and they're like Zaheer hides behind a veneer of a philosophy of anarchism but actually he's just like cruel and wants to like benefit himself out of the chaos that he will create i personally given the previous two seasons i think it's the latter yeah i like i yeah i want to give the writers the benefit of the doubt and say that it's option three well because they do it with the last two villains right they do it with sort of like the false class consciousness of Amon, they do it with the false spirituality of um, Unlock. Wait, that's kind of their thing. Yeah. Is like, and and you will see it in season four too, where um, you know, where men for seasons one through three who want some kind of power or benefit from themselves use the veneer of a philosophy that has its merits to sort of mask the fact that they're in this for their own gain. And the thing that always gets me about people who are like, Ooh, we want to create chaos is that they're defeated by the very forces that they extol. Like if chaos is just people doing what they want, then people wanting to defeat them is chaos. So shouldn't that be a good thing? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It, fair it, enough. It, it's very contradictory. Yeah. Um, it's like, no, it needs to be the right kind of chaos. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. you don't really get it, do you? Yeah, for sure. So it's like, it's interesting because it's like, Zaheer is like, that. what I've said, like, people love this season. And it's interesting because it starts so slow. But I think part of the reason people love the season is, A, because the last three episodes are just like, fucking pounding you in the face with the action, man. It's crazy. Um, the fights are really just like unparalleled by anything in either season. And also because Zaheer, like from a certain perspective, more than any of the other villains, like has a fucking point. And it's like hard to figure out where he stops having a point and just like wants to create like chaos and destruction. Yeah, I think the point that we lose him is when he kills the Earth Queen. Yes, which I super want to talk about. Um, all right, so this season was sort is sort of like, in my opinion, is like a very is a huge departure because starting at episode nine, the show stopped airing on Nickelodeon. It started mm -hmm. airing online on their website, which was kind of weird. It's like, why is this like? 
Yeah, sure. The ratings were declining, but what? They're going to throw some like fucking syndicated rerun in the spot that it used to be. Mm-hmm. It, they, it that that one never particularly felt like a good explanation to me. I mean, this is sort of speculative, so obviously don't take this as truth. Um, it also started to happen after, for the first time, we see an on like a basically on screen brutality. From yeah, it's Zaheer. like Zahir fucking sucks the air out of the Earth Queen's lungs on screen. We watch her face as she dies on a children's program that aired on Nickelodeon. <laughs> well, and and I think they needed to do that. I thought I was like, okay, finally, this season ups the lethality of bending. Uh, yes, absolutely. You, because you, also, once that's over, I notice there is death. Like, like, Pali fucking okay, dies. Yeah, okay. Ming Wong dies. It was something that Avatar had always shied away from. They always got right up to the edge and choked. And we talked about that. How, um, or like, you know, like with, like with Commander Zhao and Unalak and stuff, it's like, well, we can't really be sure they died. Maybe they just got like sucked into the spirit world or whatever. Or like Aang having a whole thing about not wanting to kill the Fire Lord and then finding a lazy, we think, way out of having to do that. Um, but then they finally were like, we're not like this show is about more mature themes. The audience is more mature and we're not going to go up to the edge and stop anymore. Like we're going to go, we're going to cross that line. Well, and they get close to that line multiple times. So for example, when um, there are numerous fights with uh, the waterbender, I always forget her name. ming Yeah. Where she's using like, ice scythes and spears and she gets like date and she cuts stone up she basically gets like dangerously close to just like fucking eviscerating people yes dude and like only by the skin of their teeth do people escape that like there's a moment where um i will i also forget ang's daughter's name sometimes kaya kaya duh um kaya and boomy um where, like, Kaya is fighting her, and this ice spear comes, and she she snaps the spear in half and shoots it back, which is just, like, a fucking... That's one of my favorite moments between their fight. Um, but it's, like, no. She, she like, almost fucking died. Just, like, yeah. right there. That's straight a dope up. fight, too. All the fights in this season are fucking incredible. But that's the thing, too, is so, like, when Zaheer kills the Earth Queen, that's, like huge and remains huge because we like watch the light fade out of the queen's eyes like it is incredibly fucking brutal and we see every moment of it but i think also Pali and ming Hua, even oh. though we don't see their death quite as much are also a big deal because they're also equally brutal deaths and they are killed by the good guys yeah ming Hua. uh is Mako fighting Mako. To death. Yeah, is fighting Mako, and they go into a like a a cavern full of water, and Mingwa's water tentacles are connecting to all the water in the cavern, and so Mako hops up on some rocks and just lightning bends into the water. And that's yeah. that. I'm and, not sure now 
it's okay. one of those moments where it's like I could like watch season four and Mingwa shows up and I'm like, oh shit, she didn't actually die. But it's like I don't remember her being in season four. And it's like one of those that's like, okay, well, if she wasn't dead, there was a reasonable expectation that she was and that that was Mako's intention. And like the way Pali dies is that she's oh like about God. to create an ex- fucking oh brutal my dude because this... the camera cuts away from it immediately. Well, and that's the moment. A... That's the moment where I like shat my pants. I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" I was like, "Jesus fucking Christ, dude!" So like she's about to create an explosion with her mind, and fucking Lin Suyen metal Su-Yen. bends just a sheet of metal around her head. Which would kill her regardless eventually because of suffocation. But essentially, Lynn just made this woman explode her own head. Like, that's fucking horrific, dude. Well, yeah, and so all the metal benders, like Su Yen's people, they wear this, like, metal coat. Mm -hmm. And basically she takes it off and she flings it at her head and it wraps around her head. And Su, like... That's the moment where, like, Su Yen is brutal. Was it Su Yen or was it it Lin? It was Su Yen. It was Su Yen. It was Su Yen? Okay. Um, And you see, like, you see light, you see, like, light flash from inside and then it cuts. Yeah. And then just Zakir is making a sad face because Pali was his girlfriend. Um. Also, so, yeah. just want to point out while we're talking about the uh, Pali's Zahir ship, uh, Zahir's a short king. <laughs> like Pali is a giant woman, but so here's a short king. He's like way shorter than her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they and they show them next to each other kissing, and like he's got to like lean up. So shout out to all the short dudes. Yeah, for sure. We love you. We stand a short king. <laughs> um. So that so so there, a big change is is the lethality of the show, which cor- correlates very strongly with they moved online. Yeah, and it's like, well, my understanding is the episode where the Earth Queen is killed was the last episode to be broadcast over the air, correct? Let me check here. No. Was it the first episode to be online? Um... The episodes Long Live the Queen. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it was the so first long, online episode? So long Live the Queen was episode 10. So episode 9 was was the episode before. Was it, So it was the episode before. Okay. Yeah, because, like, I think it's something that you mentioned in college. It's something I talked about with our friend Clint in college. And, like, sort of the conspiracy theory is that, like, Nickelodeon were like, holy fuck, when they when the writer is like that, basically, we believe our conspiracy theory is that the writers and Nickelodeon execs had a debate about whether or not they could do this and that basically like it might not have happened exactly like this. It might be some other way, but that basically as the consequence for being allowed to do that, they were no longer going to be broadcast over the air and it was going to be moved to online. And, and yeah, ratings kind of seem like a, like an excuse. 
Now, Nickelodeon does tend to think that they can only have like one big show at a time, and they've decided that that's going to be SpongeBob for 40 years. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh my God. It's been fucking 20 years of this shit. Oh my God. (laughs) For 40 years. Holy shit. Um, we're going to have to watch the original Spongebob at some point, and I know you don't want to, but we have to do it. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, but yeah like, I feel like even though Nickelodeon is notorious for doing that, and like, yeah, the ratings were declining a little bit, but like, not that much. And I think that also, if the ratings were the real thing, it would be... It would also be a victim of that same thing happened to a lot of shows during that era also where like their ratings weren't good and then they got moved to online and it turned out like tens of millions of people were watching the whole time, you know, but like I don't think their ratings were that bad. They just fallen like a little bit, you know, and this show was still like it was getting nearly as much praise and recognition as the original Avatar had. Well, and it, it should be noted that this is, like, the later end of the nexus of, like, traditional TV companies not seemingly being able to adapt to internet-heavy consumption and understanding um, there were a lot of people who were watching Cora not on TV. Yes, exactly. Yeah, like, this happened in... 14. Let's see, the final, yeah, the final season of Korra was in 2015, so this would have been 2014. And so, like, Netflix has been around for a little bit, like, I mean, we're, we're heavy into streaming now. Hulu and Netflix, I think, were, like, had become major players at that point, but they're still, like, I still got the sense that cable companies were lagging behind in like how well they were able to gauge consumption outside of traditional television mm-hmm. areas. Mm-hmm. So it's like lots of people were into this and it was high quality, but what's striking to me is that if this show had waited five years, I think Netflix would have made the series. Yeah, for sure. But they would have done like terrible CGI. So I'm actually happy yeah. they didn't. Uh, yes, I'm throwing shade at Netflix because there's too many CGI animated shows. I am really disappointed that the creators of Avatar have gotten involved with Netflix and what they've decided to do is like a live action remake of the original Avatar series. I'm like, nobody wants this. Nobody need this. Nobody asked for this. Leave us the fuck alone. Give me a second sequel series or give me nothing. Yeah, like. And do the same animation. I get that it's more expensive, but it's worth it. You fucks. We love you. Yes. We, we love you. We Thank love you. Thank you so much for all you've done. But please, I want, like, either prequel series, go more ancient, or another sequel series where we get fully into the modern era and the Avatar has a cell phone. Airplanes. Airplanes. Spaceships. <laughs> spaceships. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, so we've got, yeah, the political stuff with Zaheer. We've got this family trauma with Lynn. Well, uh, family issues. I wouldn't say it's trauma. We even get a shout out to um, 
Kuvira, who's going to be in the next They're season. They're telegraphing it so hard. It's I'm so, like, please so, fucking stop. There were like, multiple moments where it's like, Chekhov's she was just gun. like a person who was like helping somebody out. And then she was like, I'm Kuvira. And they like zoomed in on her face. I'm like, okay, settle the fuck down, please. I like, uh, I, it, okay, she's going to be important. <laughs> all that it lacks is a duh, duh, duh. Like a weird musical cue. Like it gives you like when you haven't seen season four, it gives you the feeling I'm like, am I supposed to know who this is? <laughs> Why are they doing this like three times? Um. So, yeah, there's the 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 anarchism stuff is is like a big one. Um, mm-hmm. I think we get to see some really cool adolescent development issues coming from Kai and Janora. Um, yeah so yeah just finished talking about development actually in my class and um janora is starting like janora is clearly i don't know what she's like 13 or 14 yeah but i want to say they're somewhere between 12 and 14 yeah so she's like already likely heavily into puberty and is starting to like chafe against her father. Like up to this point, she's been the good, like the good daughter. Responsible, listens to her dad, does all these things. Um, classic firstborn. Yeah, classic firstborn. And we get to see her chafe and sort of try to find her her legs. And her big sticking point is that she's now an airbending master and she wants her fucking tattoos. Yeah, it's like she wants... She is in ability an airbending master and wants that acknowledged by the community and by specifically her father. And he's not, and I, you know, and I think it's Kai actually who's like, well, you're just as good at airbending as your dad and you're actually better at spirit stuff than he is. You know, why don't you have tattoos? Well, and, and OK, so number one, I feel like the argument over tattoos like could happen in the real world where a 14 year old girl is like, dad, I want to get tattoos. Let me get tattoos. I'm old enough. So I feel like that's like a really cool um, example of that conversation occurring in the avatar universe. Um, The second one is that this is sort of a trope where the bad boy starts to influence the good girl in a way against her parents. And sometimes that's shown as like bad or predatory almost. But this is like an example where you kind of think that's the way it's going to go. But when all is said and done, Kai is a good influence on Janora. Yeah. The things that like Kai has his own issues that need to be worked through. But the things that he points out to Janora are like pretty reasonable. And what she then turns around and goes to her father with is really reasonable. She's like, look. Like, I was a big help to Cora with harmonic convergence. I am, in terms of ability, I, you know, equal you to the point where you have let me instruct the new airbenders. In fact, like, in certain ways, my personality is better for teaching than yours. I've had more success in the spiritual one than you have. And I'm growing up and I want you to recognize that I've made these achievements and treat me thusly, you know? And that's all good. Like, Kai, Kai doesn't tear their family apart, as is often portrayed with the bad boy deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, Tenzin, he pushes back against her a lot because 
we see again more stuff with Tenzin where he's a very he's a very rigid person and he things don't always go the way that he expects them to go or wants them to go and he has a hard time dealing with it and one of those things is you know classic dad issue his little girl is not so little anymore you know but he eventually throughout the season like deals with that and the uh, season actually ends with the ceremony for Janora being recognized as an airbending master and getting her tattoos. And it's really cool. It is. What I also like is that at first when Tenzin hears about Kai and Janora, he kind of does that typical like weird dad mate guarding thing where he's <laughs> like, my daughter can't be sexual. Like she needs to sit like it. I could, I will probably get into it in a second. But he, he moved like the first time he hears about it, he, he is sort of perturbed, but you get the sense that it's just because he still thinks of her as a kid. Yeah, for sure. And then once, once she asserts herself, he's like, okay. So it's like very yeah, cool to like, see like a dad it, release his grip over his daughter. Yeah. You still get the sense that he isn't the biggest fan of Kai, but in a sort of normal, like parents don't always think that their child has made the best choice in a partner kind of way, you know? Well, and so there's this weird thing. Like, have you ever noticed how like adult men are weirdly protective of their daughter's virginity? Yes. It's like, super fucking creepy. It's so creepy. Like the whole shotgun, like on the porch, like that's fucking weird. Yeah, it's like, okay, let me tell you something. My dad, who is like a liberal guy, um, but otherwise like a relatively traditional person in terms of like the gender roles that he's lived out in his own life. Like I remember him talking about when I was a teenager, like how fucking creepy that was. He's like, I don't understand these dudes like with their daughters or their fucking purity balls and shit. Like it's creepy. Like, do you want to have sex with your daughter? Yeah, like there, there's this big, and I mean, I, I, there, there are a number of hypotheses you could propose to uh, explain this behavior, but like it's still weird when you think about so it. So weird. Um, it's like they're they they care, and it 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 would be one thing, and some of them do approach it from like I don't want her to get hurt, like she's my little girl. When it's like that, when they're like fourteen or fifteen, you know, okay. When they're fucking seventeen or eighteen. Come on. Like, that's, yeah, that's and it's fucking like, it's also weird. This, it, the fact that our culture is now a lot more sexually libertine makes it even fucking weirder. Because, you know, even just a hundred years ago, you could make the argument that it's like, you know, it may or may not be right, but like, you know, your your virginity is like an important thing to your value in society and if you, um, you know, if you don't maintain that until the right time, like it could make things very difficult for you. And I just want to like protect you and make sure your life is as easy as I can make it. You could make that argument, you know, like in history. Right. But now the world is not fucking like that. <laughs> so there's like no like sort of social benefit to acting that way towards your daughter. You, you can't make any claim that like it's like for her own protection in that way, right? Well, and, and it's weird because similarly to what you were saying, like back when 
Like, I mean, and you can even think like thousands of years ago, like virginity and um, marriage, like just like permanent bonding between families. Like to me, it did make sense that fathers would monitor that mostly because you're right. They, that would very much impact in many societies, like a woman's ability to have a successful life, which sucks. But like in those situations, that was like a, like an ecologically justified approach, like monitoring your daughter's sexual behavior. Um, but it's weird because even if that were the case today, I still like virginity and purity has sort of like taken on a life of its own above and beyond connection to social status or being able to get married or like do all of those sort of traditional culture-y things. It's like purity has moved beyond just like virginity to like something bigger and weird. It's like any sex will just like ruin you. It's um, yeah. It's become like it's it's beyond social status. It's beyond the ability to get married. It's beyond even religion anymore. Like it is this like we have I like. I think that like future like anthropologists will be like, you know, like, well, you know, 20th century uh, America had um, like a cult of purity, like a, a, a so like socio religious cult of virginity, you know, um, like because you're right. It is like it's it's become its own thing that is only tenuously connected to social status and religion anymore. Yeah, and I think is that if, if it maintains while those connections fall away further, we, we know for sure that, like, this has become something different. Like, who, who it'll be, I hope it doesn't. I hope it goes away. But and back to Cora, we know that Tenzin yeah. doesn't do that. So that's really cool. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, he, like, he's, like, not cool with her being with Kai at first, but it's mostly because he feels like she's, like, she's a child and that she shouldn't date and then he just like he kind of like grumbles about it, but it's mostly just because he thinks Kai is like a little shit. Which in Tenzin's defense, he kind of is. Um, Bolin starts dating, like starts like dating Opal Suyin's daughter, who's the new Bolin Airbender. Gets a lot of FaceTime in this season. Actually, he does. He does. He learns how to lava bend. Yes. Oh my god. He dates Opal, who is just super fucking cute. Um, and that relationship is very sweet. Um, he gets third. really distressed because Cora learns to metal bend super easily. And Bolin still can't do it. And he's like really sad about it. But in the end, it turns out lava bender the whole time. Yeah, it's too bad that Bolin and Opal have trouble in the fourth season. I know. It's sad. I mean, they work it out eventually. But like Opal was right. <laughs> yes, Opal is completely right. But we'll get there when we get there. But like, so the other thing that um, like Mako doesn't have a ton of FaceTime this season, actually, Bolin gets a lot more. But a big plot thing that happens with Mako and Bolin is that they discover that they have a huge family in Ba Sing Se. Their family's like from the lower ring. So like they're super poor people. Um, unsurprising, but they have like a grandma and like a million cousins and aunts and uncles. And it's like a super awesome development. Like, and they, cause they suspected that they might have family there, but they weren't sure. And they wanted to try and find them. And there's a really funny bit 
about <laughs> like when uh, Bolin's trying to convince Mako to come like to Ba Sing Se with him about like, what if I find our grandma? <laughs> you know, you're not there and she dies. Um, but that's super cute. Like, I don't have a ton to say about it. There's not a ton of plot with it, but they just have like a cute, tiny grandma and it's nice that they have a family. Yeah, we find out that for some reason their dad never like talked to their grandma, which is like really sad and kind of dickish. Well, I get the feeling that it's like he had to move away and that like he could only really because he was poor and his family was poor, he could only really write them letters. And he was like, oh, I've gotten married. She's really wonderful. I can't wait for you to meet her. And we had kids and like, hopefully you'll meet them someday and blah, blah, blah. And grandma's like, and then he just like stopped writing back. And Mako and Bolin have to be like, oh, he died. Well, she says, (laughs) you know, she says that he only ever wrote one letter. They said he only ever wrote one letter. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was wrong about that. And that's why did he only ever write one fucking letter? Yeah, I know. Yeah. What the hell? Exactly. Okay. I thought he'd written like a few letters, but it was like he couldn't really come back or like write that often because there's an expense involved and he couldn't afford it. Well, I mean, maybe but, like, some of that stuff you can, is Anybody implied. can afford to write more than one letter. Yeah. See, I, I thought that was like that kind of told me like they didn't talk about it, but he was like trying to escape something. Yeah. Yeah. That he was like estranged from them in some way. Yeah. Uh, hmm. <laughs> mysteries on mysteries. Varric makes hmm. a return. Fuck yes. <laughs> he's he again doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he's like hanging out with the Metal Clan and Julie is there. <laughs> he's uh really getting into magnetism. <laughs> which is funny. Lots of because everything in the metal city is metal. Mm-hmm. So like the mag every when he turns on his big magnet suit, everything flies to him. <laughs> and poor Julie has to pick it up. Oh, poor Julie. Yeah, but we love Varric. Glad to see Varric in this one. Um, the show, like, this season is very plot heavy. Yeah, it is. Like, there's, like, the other, like, sort of minor plot lines are pretty, like, pretty small. You know, like, not a ton happens. Like, even, like, you know, the stuff with the new airbenders, it's mostly, like, Tenzin, very rigid guy. Has a hard time teaching. Pisses everybody off. <laughs> They're a baby air bison. They're super cute. Yeah, they, they and they can't fly when they're born. Oh, yeah. They're on the ground. There were air bison poachers. And it, there was a continuing bit with uh, Kai kept calling them bisons. And that's a big one where it's like Kai starts to like, you know, leave behind his old rapscallion ways and become the good guy. You know, he even though he's like a 13 year old boy, he gets aggressive with these huge posters. He's like, you think you could kidnap my friend and all these baby bisons? Um, the plural of bison is bison. Fucking Tenzin. Uh, well, and, and I guess when, when I say it's poppy, I mean, there's like aside from the anarchism stuff, which we talked about. Um, and aside from, like, some of the character developments, like, there's not a whole, like, like, economically, you can see that the Earth Kingdom is in decline. Yes. That um, things in Ba Sing Se are more, like, are, de- are decaying. 
Um, sort of like a Roman Empire. The implication is decades of mismanagement, like a country ravaged by a hundred years of war, followed by many decades of mismanagement by an avaricious, by first a just kind of dopey king who didn't really know what he was doing, and then a generally avaricious um, queen who cares not for the struggles of the people and only for herself and her own luxuries. Yeah, which you mean totally mirrors like the fucking French Revolution, the decline of the Roman Empire, like all these sorts of things that we For see sure. in history are, are echoed here, it, which we learn is mostly set up. Yeah, like, honestly, most of that stuff is set up for season four. They did a really good job with with all of that. Um, the all this stuff leading in, into season f- like a lot of the Earth Kingdom shit just like flows seamlessly into season four. But again. We'll get to that when we get to that. I do want to talk a little bit about the last couple of episodes and and what happens to Korra and that whole yes battle. So um, I I mean I think it's as simple as she tries to fight them. She gives herself up for the Airbenders that Zahir has captured. It's a trick. Uh, they manage to capture Korra and they don't get the Airbenders back. <laughs> She is taken to a Red Lotus facility in a, well, a cave where mm-hmm. they metal bend mercury into Yeah, it her looks body. like mercury. They don't say this is mercury. They just say it's a poison, but like it's a it looks metal. like mercury. It's a liquid metal. Yeah. So like it I, I they call it a poison, but I'm just like, that's fucking that's just a fight. You're just gonna heavy metal poison her. Yeah. Um, I'm like the the idea is like to force her into the avatar state using the poison and then kill her using bending so that because as established in avatar, if the avatar dies in the avatar avatar state, the cycle of rebirth is broken and there's no more avatar anymore. So we find out all along the red Lotus just wants to do what Unalak wanted to do. Sans the Rava or uh, Vatu Vatu business. Yes, they just want there to be no more Avatar anymore. And it's like, it's really fucked up. So it ends up being that, like, Zahir learns to fly. <laughs> okay, yeah, so um, some mystic airbender, like, thousands of years ago, Guru Lahima untethered all of his earthly concerns. Mm-hmm. And when he did that, he learned to fly. He was just, he just could fly. Yeah, it's like he kept meditating on this particular, like, sutra, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. This particular sutra that Guru Lahima had written that uh, let go your earthly tether, enter the void, empty, and become wind. And it's like he couldn't do it until Pali died, right? And then he didn't have any earthly desires anymore. He's like, Zahir is like a militant Buddhist, (laughs) Like, I meant to, like, research militant Buddhist movements before we did this because, like, those are were a real thing in history. Um, and he's kind of just, like, a Buddhist but violent. <laughs> yeah, so he, learned, he gains this mystic untethering and can fly. Um, so Korra is captured. She is resisting the poison. Her friends come to save her, and she has this major air battle. It's 
fucking incredible, dude, because he's like flying and she's using essentially um, firebending to propel herself through the air. And it's like, I think it's really the first time that we really see like, this is the power of an avatar. Like, this is the power of a fully realized avatar because she's being, like, poisoned, but she's in the avatar state, like, basically the whole time, and she's, like, using firebending to propel herself, and she's earthbending these huge, like, mountains, essentially, and, like, throwing them at Zaheer, and it's, like, fucking incredible to watch, and, like, it's, it's, you're just, like, floored by the sheer power of it, you know? Um, But she eventually fades because of the poison and the airbenders mm-hmm. all create a tornado to suck Zaheer in so he can't fly away. It's very and, cool. And they manage to defeat him. But the big part is like Korra's fucking being ravaged by just like there's like literally a gallon of mercury in her body. She's, she's dying. It's no good at all. And she just kind of like gets sucked down in the tornado too and like falls to the ground and like Su Yen has to um, metal bend the poison out of her body so she doesn't die. But then we see, like, in the weeks afterward, like... The damage is done. As- the damage is done, yeah. Like, Asami's helping her get ready to go to uh, um, Jinora's ceremony. And, like, Cora does not look good. Like, she's pallid. Her cheeks are hollowed out. Bags under her eyes. She can't walk. She's in a wheelchair. And more than that, she looks depressed. The, you know, the end of the season is like, you know, she gets thanked for all that she did to sort of save the world and to help with the reestablishment of the air nomads as a culture. And they're doing this whole ceremony. And Cora has a small smile on her face and claps with everyone else. But then it just kind of zooms in on her face and her face just completely falls. It's a very graduate-esque moment, you know? Yeah, she's like they they won, but they didn't really. Pyrrhic victory. And and that's where it just cuts off with her. Like Yeah, it's kind of like that's the end of the season and you're just kind of like, "Oh no." <laughs> oh, oh no. Change change is right. Yeah, for sure. And that again like really is like very very connected to uh season four which we won't go into now we'll do another episode on that very soon but i will say as a little teaser what i like to refer to as the trauma season yeah what uh the poisoning turns out turns out to be a pretty good metaphor for trauma so um we're we get to talk about we get to talk about that but yeah. this is, think of this as like a serious trauma has been done to her. And now yeah, she's like sure. in the midst of it, trying to, trying to, uh, m- you know, live with this. Yeah. And I would say like another point to be made with this is like, so a serious trauma was done to her. Like she almost died. Like he tried to murder her. He poisoned her. She almost died. You know, and it's really physically done a number on her. But when you think about the trauma that's happened to Korra in the last couple of years, you should also think about how Unalak ripped Rava out of her body and severed her connection with all of her past lives. And she almost died. 
And in season one, Amon took away her bending. And there was also a time where she and she was kidnapped by uh, Tarlock. And there were times where she almost died. So I think that like when we when we get to season four and we approach what she's going through, I think that we should it's like it's important to have it in the context of not just what happened at the end of season three, but what happened in seasons one and two as well. Yes. Wow. I, I actually she's been through think, a lot. <laughs> she's been through a lot. Yeah, she's been through a lot and it's not over yet. Mm, nope. It sure isn't. <laughs> it sure isn't. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that's like, you know, season three is like it is an incredible season to watch. Um, like Zaheer's ideology is like really interesting. Um but it's also pretty straightforward. Uh, and because it's also really plot heavy and like action packed and a lot of it is in just like really incredibly choreographed and animated fights, it's hard to like talk about it uh, like ad nauseum without just sort of summarizing the plot, which isn't something we really want to do. I agree. I The music is really good. Mm, yeah, that too. There's yeah. like, like, animation fucking beautiful as usual yeah they did like a shout out really needs to go to the people who storyboarded and choreographed everything yeah like i said it earlier but i will say it again the fights in this season particularly the last two to three episodes are completely unparalleled by anything else in either avatar series like think of the you know ang versus the fire lord um Katara and Zuko against uh, um, Azula, you know, uh, anything in like, you know, like Korra versus Amon, any of those things like they they don't touch it. They don't touch the fights in this season. They're they're stunning. They are incredible works of animation. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are numerous airbenders. Like, let's be real, airbending is the coolest. It's very cool. It's very, very cool. Like, uh, just like that and lava bending is overpowered. Lava bending is so OP. Oh my god. Gazan, like, melts entire mountains. Or like, like, Bolin says it at one point. He's like, oh, I can't fight this guy. It's like I'm giving him ammo. Yeah, because he can just turn yeah. stone into lava. And you're just like, dude, where's all this energy coming from? Like, throwing some rocks, okay. Creating self-sustaining lava is, like, a whole new level. Yeah, I have questions about how that one works. Like, you can generate more force and heat than a firebender or an earthbender. Yeah, basically, like, yeah. Yeah, I have questions about that one. I, I think also it's just generally, like, all four because the thing about Zaheer is that even though he's a brand new airbender, it's sort of like he's the worst possible person to have gotten airbending because not only is he like very dangerous, like in terms of like his ideology and his like organizational skills and what he's willing to do, but he is obsessed with like air nomad culture and philosophy. So he basically gets airbending and is already like, all right, I'm a master. Like I've like read and read and read and read about this and I've like I've got it under control, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. like all four of the Red Lotus members are 
some of the most insanely powerful benders that we've ever seen. Yeah, I was kind of sad that um, Kaya couldn't beat her counterpart. Mingwa. Yeah. Like, I, I Kaya is supposed to be really powerful, but... She know. is, but just Mingwa was more powerful, you Where's know? Katara? Katara should fight. She's so old. <laughs> I know, but she could probably just, like, bloodbend that. No, God, she would never. I know. The yeah, that's really, that's really all I've got about season three, honestly. The dark side is a path to power some would call unnatural. Oh, God, stop it, Palpatine. Have you seen the new Star Wars? Yeah, I've seen it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. But that's but that's it. That's all I have. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, like, I think... Yeah. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's, I understand why it's some people's favorite season of the show. Um, I definitely think you should, like, I'm never not going to recommend a season of any Avatar show, you you know? Um, yeah, but it's like, it's fucking incredible. It's great. Everybody go watch it. Um, we're going to watch season four now. (laughs) The doomsday weapon season. Oh my God. I forgot about that. You forgot about them? No spoilers. No spoilers. Uh, okay. Alrighty. Well, I thank you for joining us. Hopefully we're on a regular schedule now. Um, yep. I'm Chris. And I'm Paige. And this has been Animates. As usual, please follow us on Twitter at Animates. Follow us on Facebook at Animates Podcast. You can email us with thoughts, questions, Things you just want to chat about, uh, the email address is animates at gmail.com with the numeral 8 in there. And as usual, play, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening.